0: me a lot of it starts at work if you have a full-time job and that is where it's crazy at work all the time it's very hard to compartmentalize that it leaks you must find a way to remedy that to introduce calm at work to make it more calm at least not necessarily as the final destination but make it more calm if you are stuck at it's crazy at work you're going to find it very difficult, I believe, to make it peacefully
1: calm at home. That was David Heinemar Hansen, and this is Doug, the podcast. Welcome to Dugget, episode 52, and what a doozy of an episode with DHH, or David Hanema Hansen. DHH, it sounds like a drug, doesn't it? This is your dose of DHH. And for those who don't know David, he is the generalist and technologist behind Ruby on Rails, which is this coding language, which is the foundation to so many amazing things we see on the internet, from apps to web. Uh, websites and so much more he's also the founder and CTO of Basecamp formerly 37 Signals he's a best selling author Le Mans class winning racing car driver I've seen some of his footage driving it's that's unreal and uh, he's a public speaker hobbyist photographer family man and I'll add to that a renaissance man he really is a questioner and philosophizer, if that's even a word of life and a passionate reader of stoic uh, stoicism essentialism um, and so much more. This really was a, just a, a deep dive into how to live a better life, and I've, I reached out to David after hearing about his new book, It Doesn't Have to be Crazy at Work, and all about the need for calm and questioning the way we operate and making the world a better place. And it just really resonated with me. So I was so grateful and fortunate to have an hour with David um, and to hear some of his insights into life and from someone who lives and breathes it and really practices what he preaches. He talks about how just a really successful day is getting that three to four hours done, a couple of hours done just solid. We dive deep into that flow state and you do your greatest work, which for him is writing and coding. That's what he loves more than anything. He loves it even more than driving his amazing cars around the racetrack. track. Um, but we also talk into family life and, and how to really uh, find your dharma and live it and, and to find your balance and to question the way we do things and to really learn from those who have come before us, particularly the, the Stoics and um, other philosophers. And uh, yeah, some great book recommendations, so many great things, including um, doing something shitty now and again. Just to really appreciate you know what we have it's so easy to get into a trap where you can become really ungrateful and uh, to, to be reminded of what we have and how fortunate we are and what a wonderful place we live in and how great the world is at this time I think is just such an such an important message and and also the message of calm so make sure you check out his book I'll uh, give a book away for the best review comment on the podcast or my Instagram page so Really appreciate the support, check his books out and uh, without further ado here is the legend himself, DHH, David Heinemann Hansen. Hey, David! There we go. Oh, I didn't know Sorry what... I was uh, running late. Oh, no problem. Um, so, sorry, I'm not sure that why the Zoom wasn't working. Yeah, that was weird. I've used Zoom in the past. Yeah, I, I I I haven't recorded a podcast on um, on Zoom or Skype for a while, so I wasn't sure why it yeah why it wasn't going. But sometimes the mysterious ways of technology. <laughs> <laughs> um, but th- thank you so much for your time and for um and for fitting this in. Yeah, absolutely, um, absolutely. It's it's been a little hectic lately, but um, yeah, this is great. I'm excited to. Uh, to record yeah uh, well i mean what really appealed to me was um i guess i come from an advertising background and doing the opposite what everyone else is doing and um right. and, and in the advertising world it, it was just some of the things you talked about these um these ideas just didn't make any sense like you you, you know you weren't allowed to leave till the boss left and people working this crazy weekends. I I kind of left to teach yoga and and, and I saw your books and, um, and it just, it was like a breath of fresh air, I guess.
0: (laughs) And yeah, I've I've heard that from a lot of people in, in the advertising industry that it's a particular affliction there. Everything we talk about is sort of on steroids in that industry.
1: Yeah. And, um, I guess if people, uh, if you were to sum up what you do, um, like a technologist a generalist and 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 i guess you kind of philosophize on a few things as well is there um have you have you adapted your kind of uh, title in any way lately uh i haven't but that is a good point i I think there's a lot of
0: titles of ways people think about people that are, are very sort of it's one box i mean either i'm a software developer or um, I'm a business owner, or I'm an author, or I'm any of these labels. And I don't know, it's for me, the the value often comes from the composition, not from being just the one thing. It's how all of these inform each other. Um, And I mean, that is just dovetailed with, with my interest as they've always been in the sense that Working, for example, on a software company was never the only thing that I did. There's a lot of people in a variety of industries, certainly in the software industry, who see their ego as being just this one thing. Like they're a business owner and that's who they are and that defines who they are. And I guess I've never become that invested into just a single title or a single hat. And in fact, I've become invested into into not having that, and taking the experiences from, say, running a software company to parlay them into to writing about work practices, or writing about uh, aspirations on growth, or, or, or any of these other topics that we cover in our books and talks, and and sort of all that cross pollinate. The same thing with programming. I find there's plenty of parallels between uh, programming and running a company, and uh, and and even as far left field as race car driving. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's a sort of a convoluted answer of, of saying, I don't know if there really is a a title that encapsulates this. It, the sort of the self grandious way that I've heard others describe themselves in this way is um, Renaissance people. Um, that you're, you're someone who, and, and I guess the um, sort of the ATA is like the artists, there were also the scientists, there were also... The philosopher, there were also, I think that that is sort of a vintage idea that there was once upon a time where things were simple enough that you could do more than one thing at once. And I think that's still true. Most people just don't perceive it as true. and and I think there's a lot of cultural guardrails that served to keep us in, in a in a certain box, in a certain lane, that you're just this one thing, you're just as specialized. And in fact, I think we're worse off for it. There's a lot of specialists that are in my opinion worse specialists because they don't have the broad perspective. Whether that is modern philosophy or it's software development or it's authors or or business owners, um, oftentimes the true insert or true insights that move us forward are the cross-pollinated ones that like things are not actually as complicated that, as, as many people would like us to believe.
1: Yeah, I love that. I, for me, it shows up in medicine as well. You know, the 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 Western yes. versus Eastern medicine, and specialists not considering hugely so.
0: Yeah. I, I've seen that. It's funny. I just actually had a a doctor's appointment today, and we were talking about uh, about five years ago. I had a a bit of a medical emergency, and I was hospitalized, and I got to see. That there were all these specialists that would walk in, and I'm sure they knew a lot about their field, but they were so focused that, like, if you got the specialist who would specialize in in why, they came and saw your case, oh, of course you have why. right? Like, it's such a tunnel on, on the vision, and I think it's – there's distinct drawbacks to that, and I think the society at large has focused largely on all the benefits we get from that, which is also true that – we do discover new things because people go deep. But I think we also have a tendency to forget other things, more basic fundamentals,
1: because we aren't going wide. Yeah, I love that. If you've if you've got a hammer, everything looks like a nail. <laughs> yes. <laughs> indeed. And um and and I was at a, a great talk the other night with one of New Zealand's top psychologists and he was talking about the need for calm now in the world and that it's, that calm is the antidote to everything that's going on Um, and yeah, just tied in so nicely with, with your book and your message that it doesn't have to be crazy at work, that calm um, can be such a wonderful way to operate. Um, And is that, is that like it's come from your own work, but is this just a message you wanted to spread to the world? Was it like, obviously things are out of balance and you, you, want to, you felt like you wanted to do something about it to, to correct or like, where was the book, the inspiration for the book?
0: So it really came from the fact that uh, a fair number of the topics in the book are, are things we've been talking about for a long time, for 20 years. All the time, Jason and I have been working together and we've been writing blogs or doing conference talks and, and a previous book we wrote called Rework all the way back in 2010 touched on some of these same points. But what we found was we've been talking on a bunch of these topics for a long time. And you'd think that things would be getting better. A lot of other things are getting better, especially in technology. Computers are getting faster. Uh, bandwidth is getting wider. We're getting all these upgrades all the time. The, the new version of this comes out. And it's like everyone goes, this is the best version of the iPhone we've ever made. Right? So there's this constant progress, this constant improvement on a number of factors. But what we saw was we were regressing on other factors, that people were having an ever harder time getting work done at work. And we are like, well, this is crazy. Not only is it crazy in the sort of metaphysical sense of like we're just observing what's going on, but people themselves are calling it crazy. The common expression or the common reply to, oh, so how's work, is very often it's crazy at work. It's crazy. Like I'm crazy busy. And we went, this is odd. People aren't getting more done. It's They're not crazy because we're twice as productive as we were in 2010. No, we're crazy for a lot of other uh, intertwined but specific factors that have gotten worse and that are robbing us of the, our ability to be calm. And some of them are as, as sort of mundane is just the open office, for example. The prevalence of the open office and and the the doubling down on the open office, the doubling down on hammocks in in the office, the doubling down on bouncy balls and pinball tables and and all of these things like, oh, don't we have this fun, progressive workplace where everyone is like kind of working, but not really because we're also just having so much fun. Um, they conspire, all those factors conspire to making it really hard to concentrate and focus at work, which means that people end up with not these long, glorious stretches of uninterrupted time that are needed to do the deep, diligent, creative work that we all truly want to do, but slicing up the workdays into these tiny work moments where you can't really make material progress. And then we're surprised when people feel stressed out or burned out, Um, and we really shouldn't be. If you look at the environment that we're placing people in, and the open office is is the physical manifestation of that. But in recent years, uh, there's also an upswing in sort of the digital manifestation of that with like uh, a chat, for example. Lots of organizations have enthusiastically embraced chat as, oh, this is what's going to save us from – uh, email hell, or this is what's going to speed up collaboration. And what many people have found instead is just this nagging feeling that they're consciously anxious, constantly anxious because are they keeping up? are are they checking up on all the things they're supposed to check up on? are, are important conversations that they want to have a say in passing them by? Um, so sort of both the physical and the digital, um, assault on your senses going on at the same time, it really is not a wonder that it's so hard to get work done at work. And when you can't get work done at work, I find that most creative people, they end up miserable. They want to do good work. They don't want to just sit in a chair for eight hours a day and at the end of it realize, oh, where did that day go? Oh, it was spent in a couple of meetings, then it was spent chiming in on our chat, and then it was spent with what, right? You want to make progress. You want to get into a state of flow. You want to achieve and you want to improve. And we're making it so hard. And these are all self-inflicted wounds. They're getting worse. So that was really the impetus for the book is the knowledge is out there. The technology, so to speak, to be calm is well known. It is just poorly distributed. And one of my favorite quotes, uh, William Gibson Is fond of saying um, the future is already here. It's just not widely distributed. The odd thing is, um, in some ways, the past is already here. It's just not widely distributed. That we are actually better off if if we roll back the clock a bit. That things used to be better, and fairly recently, right? Like things have been getting progressively and acceleratingly worse just over the last few years, and. There's a lot of factors in that. I think um, everything from how the smartphone has, uh, has gotten to be a menace in our life in many ways to these factors that we're talking about at work to everything else that's sort of going on at the world at large uh, and how Facebook and Twitter and social media is amplifying that and, and is making us tense and making us um, just filled and racked with anxiety. But there are ways to say stop. And that's what we try to do in the book first diagnose the problem uh the first step of any healing is to know that something is wrong and i think a lot of people walk around right now with just this fuzzy vague feeling that something isn't right but they haven't actually named it they haven't diagnosed it and they haven't dissected the problem so that's what we set out to do in the book and just break down why is why are we where we are what are the – not just the practical matters of it, but what's the values that's underpinning all this stuff? Why does it feel like things have to go faster and faster? Why does it feel like we're addicted to growth? Why, why are all these things going on? And then the second part is to um, prescribe some remedies, prescribe some medicine. How can we get back to the calm company? How can we get to the calm company? And this is sort of an aspirational – uh, message uh, i mean not because basecamp is just this perfectly calm company uh, 8 hours a day 5 days a week no we have our um, issues as well but it's a sliding scale and we at least have a uh, company mission a company dedication to getting to calm and we want to spread that as a Message that others should hear about. They shouldn't constantly just be hearing about, oh, look at all this growth, look at all this disruption, look at all these unicorns, and think that, oh shit, I need to run even faster, I need to work even more, I worked harder, longer, all these things that are just breaking us down and making things work. We want to put out an example of saying, here's a company that explicitly values calm above crazy, first of all, which I think. Shouldn't be a controversial statement, but I think it is actually a controversial statement mm-hmm. in certain quarters of, especially the technology um, industry. But uh, this is one of the core objectives that we have, that we've been around for 20 years. We've been ber- working very hard on getting to calm. And let us uh, show you and, and teach you the things that we've learned along the way.
1: I oh, love it. Um, yeah. <laughs> Do you know Aaron Petzer, the guy from Mint? I found a Mint. He's a great tech guy as well. Um, just vaguely. Yeah, he kind of moved around around the corner. Um, I can show you the view, but it's it's similar to like where you guys are up high, and it's just a beautiful place to work remotely. Remotely, and he lives around the corner. And um, and I was talking to him about he was hiring engineers and for a new startup, and he but he said New Zealand. There's so much coastline. It's so beautiful. People want to go, you know, bike riding after work, and for a surf in the morning. And um, and no one wants to do. You know, a lot of people don't want to do a hundred-hour weeks. Um, uh, there's a bit that's of that's a feature, not a bug, right? <laughs> in, in my opinion, and the, and that's that's the that's the bit. Um, yeah, I was like, but so often it's talked about negatively. And there's a, there's a great entrepreneur coach, Dan Sullivan, and he talks about taking. As a creative, especially how many free days you need where you shouldn't be working at all, and you know just checking your phone once or one email could ruin your whole weekend because it it's not that one minute it's the the recurring thoughts and and i was and I was just wondering what have you got a morning routine and you're a family man as well, you got two beautiful kids and a wife like how do you create those boundaries for yourself and and the weekends and after work and and in the morning to to kind of separate that, that work-life balance?
0: So I'd say we start with setting a norm that 40 hours is plenty and eight hours a day is enough. It's more than enough in most cases. I can't even, if I sit down dedicatedly, do eight hours of straight work on almost any day. If I get three or four continuous wonderful hours of work, that is a glorious day. So within that framework, that 40 hours is plenty, And eight is enough, then I try to set it up with some regularity. That I usually start uh, work around nine and I finish at five. And those are pretty hard cutoffs. I'd say that the morning cutoff is not as hard as the end of day cutoff. The end of day uh, cutoff is pretty harsh. That uh, usually I have the kids waiting, they want to do something at night. We want to play video games, we want to go outside, we want to do a bunch of things. So I just know that that's where it ends. And I think that just having this idea that there's a constraint within the day that I can't make up for poor work practices – just by putting in more hours, because there are other things I want to do in my life. I want to see my family. I want to play with my kids. I want to talk with my wife. I want to play video games. I want to do a bunch of things that do not involve just work. And I find that to be such a liberating notion that there is a constraint. There's eight hours, and that's it. So that focuses the mind in a way where you're more diligent about the hours and the quality of the individual hours that you have available to yourself because there isn't an unlimited notion and you can't just squeeze out more so i usually get up around seven thirty or something like that uh, sometimes even a little earlier seven o'clock uh kind of depends then uh three times a week i work out with a trainer in the morning uh to stay in decent physical shape uh we have uh great breakfast with the kids. And then sometimes I take the kids to to school. And the funny thing is we've long been ranting about commutes and I don't have a commute to work. I mean, I have my home office, but when I take my youngest kid to his preschool, it is actually a bit of a commute. It's about 40 minute round trip, but it's on the Pacific coast highway. One of the most beautiful stretches of road, I'd argue anywhere in the world and certainly in the United States, there's no traffic. And I get to listen to a wonderful podcast on, on the way back. So even though I'm in, in many ways really a big opponent of commutes, um, that commute I, I, can, I can suffer and I can deal with. Um, and then I sort of just get into, get into a work habit around uh, 9 o'clock. And I usually petition my day somewhat that before noon is for checking in, for checking up for doing my emails, um, seeing what everyone else is up to. And then the second half of the day, um, if I should be so lucky, is to have just a long, glorious stretch of uninterrupted time where I can do the work that I enjoy doing most. So that's either programming, it's writing. Um, Those are really two of my favorite activities. And the two activities that in particular require this sort of diligent focused approach where you can't do much programming worth anything in 25 minutes. You just, you barely get into the subject matter before you have to get out of it. So I, many days, it, if I know I have several calls or, or, or I was going to say meetings, but I really very rarely go anywhere, but you could say a virtual meeting. If I have a call with someone else within the company um, and I know the day is going to chop off, I don't even try like, I just write off the day as, okay, that's not a day where I get to do my favorite creative pursuits because I know it doesn't work like that. And trying to grind out productive work from 40 minutes here 25 minutes there, half an hour there, it's just an exercise in frustration. So there are some of those days I don't get to do my favorite things all the time, and neither should it be. I. Uh, help run a company of 54 people alongside Jason. And there are just things that come up and there are issues we need to deal with. Um, But at least I do so knowingly that this is a kind of day that kind of just wasn't going to be conductive for the creative, deep work that I, I truly love. But I have to do some other things. Okay, fine. Now, when I get the opportunity to then have my long stretches of uninterrupted time, I can really appreciate them. And I can... Really make an effort to make them count. That I don't just sit down and waste that time that I invested well, and then it's enough. I don't need more of it. In fact, when I've gotten a glorious run of let's say three or four hours doing either writing or doing programming, my brain is usually kind of fried. At least for that type of work and that type of creativity, I have to step back and and clear it out and maybe just surf the web for a while and read some articles and Mm. whatever.
1: Yeah. I love that. And as like, I've been doing, looking at stuff with mental health and happiness and, you know, doing what you're best in and what really fills you up. And that's your unique gift for the world. And, and do you feel like you, you really know what your unique ability or unique kind of superpower is? Um, is it is it the coding? Is it the writing? Is it the creative pursuit? Um, is there anything in particular that comes to I'd mind? I'd say it's definitely
0: those things that I've come to accept sounds like a resignation, but it's actually a, a joyous affirmation. Accept that my life's work is programming and writing. That those are the two activities that I seem to never grow tired of. Mm. I've had other passions or hobbies over the years that have come and gone in intensity, but I've always come back to writing and programming as the core pillars of my intellectual stimulation pursuit and happiness. And I think that happiness factor is indeed closely tied to the notion of flow. There's a great book called Finding Flow that dives into uh, why that is. Through empirical methods showing that most people who recount their most joyous moments, they recount moments of flow where they lose a sort of steadfast appreciation of time and space and get so engrossed in an activity that's just beyond the reach of their current abilities that um, it's just all um, overpowering. And I still get those delightful moments of flow. And whenever I do, in some ways, it is like a drug. It it fires all the right uh, receptors in the brain that where you just shine with satisfaction and go, there's really nothing I would rather do in terms of a hobby or um, intellectual pursuit than this. And that is such a powerful place to be because it's so liberating to realize that you have these activities that give you such joy. And yet they aren't just frivolous either. That for writing, I usually get to publish what I write and other people find that useful. For programming, I get to create applications that both help power business and that other people find useful. And that is a uniquely virtuous circle. When both of you have this deep appreciation for what you do, And then that activity also helps, I mean, it sounds grandiose, but the world, that it doesn't get much better than that. And I say that as someone who reached the point of financial independence, where I've tried my hand at a lot of other things that are also quite enjoyable. Drive race cars, for example. I like that a lot. But still, it's a very distant second or third or fourth or fifth favorite pursuit, long down the list from these fundamental pillars of creativity and creation that I've found in writing and programming.
1: Yeah. I I think it's so fantastic that your work can be your highest calling and that that's your gift to the world. And, and, and there's kind of this trap that um, I see a lot in, in a lot of the private schools in New Zealand that you can't be a carpenter or you can't be a, you know, you might have a passion for a, for just woodwork or something that's not in that environment. It's not supported or encouraged in that environment. I just read a great book on this. How Jane Goodall, when she was three years old, she hid in a chicken coop and used to watch ch- how chickens laid eggs. And 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 the police were looking for her because she was gone for so long. But when her parents saw how excited she was, they were like, "Well, wonderful. You know, what have you seen? What have you been doing?" And and supported her fascination with animals and 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 But, so often those unique abilities aren't supported in the environment because of the culture or whatever and and you've got kids now who I'm sure have probably got completely different passions and unique abilities to to yourself and and how do you think about encouraging and supporting those with education and parenting and um and and I guess fostering people's you know greatest work that is the number one challenge I would
0: say of parenting to assist my kids to find an authentic expression of themselves. I completely recognize this picture you're painting of the upper echelons of education all being focused on this narrow path of expression. Oh, of course you should be a lawyer or a doctor or whatever else, or an investment banker, or any of these pursuits that are seen as sort of the highest uh, steps of polite society. And the number of investment bankers, lawyers, and even doctors that I know who are absolutely miserable in their unauthentic existence is shockingly large. And I could wish no greater failure no greater trap on my children than to allow them growing to grow up aspiring to be something that other people would want for them not what they would want for themselves and i've seen this absolutely especially in my oldest who's now um almost six who's just who loves being outside who loves chasing lizards who loves Uh, A lot of things that I didn't love as a child, like these were not the things that were sort of ranking high on on my list of pursuits. But you can see when it clicks and when it's authentic. And recognizing that moment and supporting that moment is absolutely paramount. And I think it it truly is a tragedy when you look at the, for example, statistics of um, teenage suicides rates in uh, Palo Alto and Silicon Valley, these hubs of excellence um, either with quotes or without quotes in in society in in the U.S. And you see the drive to um, accomplish, so to speak, accomplish the things that other people think count as accomplishments. When that pressure becomes large enough and when these kids grow up with that Uh, constant uh, fear that they're not able to do that, um, it wrecks havoc on the psyche. And really it is not a surprise to me that these are some of the largest suicide uh, clusters in in the U.S. And It's just so deeply tragic because it didn't need to be. If anything, if you have the resources and the privilege to Send your kids to these um, fancy and I'm sure very good, at least on some levels, private schools. Don't you also have, have the resources to allow them to pursue their authentic selves? Um, I have more sympathy for people who are trapped at a level of the socioeconomic ladder where they go, I need my kids to do better than me. We can't live here wherever we're living or um, hand-to-mouth, paycheck-to-paycheck, that there's some existential um, survival mechanism that encourages them for for the kids to, do you know what? Okay, maybe you don't love math, but you're going to fucking study because we need to get you out of this. Uh, That I have more sympathy for. I don't have a whole lot of sympathy for what happens at the other end of that scale and i'm trying very hard uh, for us to to give our kids the opportunity to find that true self like i were so fortunate to find um and whether that true self is to be a carpenter or a lizard hunter or uh, whatever else it is wonderful much rather would i have that they end up with some profession that is is uh enough for a, a decent middle-class experience rather than something that uh, uh, is this access card for the higher um, layers of, of society in, in economic senses. And again, that's also an expression of, of privilege in, in the sense that, um, I mean, as someone who is financially independent, I can obviously allow my kids to kind of do that with a different level of, security just knowing where things are but nonetheless i think this is a path and a pursuit and at least a concern that should be on every parent's mind to allow their kids to to find things that they truly love and i've just seen this over and over again um my oldest been through a fair number of different uh preschools and different institutions and it's quite clear when he finds something that resonates with him and and I mean, we're very happy that he's found that now where he actually wants to go to school, right? And he comes home excited to continue the projects that he was engaged in at his kindergarten. That, to me, is is a... I mean, if the project was just eat cotton candy and roll around on the floor all day, okay, well, maybe that's one version of bliss. But I haven't found that. Like, a lot of parents are... Uh, very concerned about things like, Oh, if I let my kid just play video games, that's the only thing they're going to do all day. You know what? I don't think that's true at all. I think kids are naturally inclined to want to learn and improve and get better. And if they're offered the opportunity to do any of those things in a supportive environment with uh, parents that respect their autonomy and um, ideas, then that happens. And this idea that left to their own devices, the kids are just going to um, roll around on the floor, play video games 16 hours a day while they eat candy floss, I can't recognize that. And and I don't think it's true. And for the amount of research I've done on this topic, I'm quite convinced that it's not true, not just from the sample size of two that we have in our household, but also from a larger, a larger slice of the empirical you know, research that's been done on education and Uh, the motivation of people kids included
1: Mm. and uh, you mentioned earlier the the kind of distraction of social media and smartphones and um i had a great piece by joe polish and it was not not why the addiction but um why the pain and you know people they're not connected to each other or their family or they're not connected to their highest dream then then it's so easy to scroll and just um, you know, waste your time in some addictive um, pursuit, which is the smartphone. Just seems to fill that for so many people. Um, I mean, have you got any thoughts around the, the that future relationship with technology, um, particularly with phones? Like, it's such a big issue in, in schools now, and and as a parent, or do you think it's just a lack of, like you say, connection of to a dream and to each other. That's the thing that's missing. Um, I was just interested in your thoughts on that area.
0: It's something I've been thinking about a lot lately, not just in relation to my kids, but also in relation to myself and how we as adults get stuck in these traps. And I found that in myself too. I'm not immune in any way, shape or form to social media. For example, I have, uh, It's funny, you you get inclined to use the vocabulary of the industry. I was going to say, I have a large engagement, which is just such a bullshit word, right? Um, But sometimes you struggle to find the more authentic words once you've been in the industry long enough. But uh, I have an affliction, I would say, um, and a love-hate relationship with a lot of social media. And I think at times, no doubt, an unhealthy relationship with social media that's facilitated through this piece of glass that we all carry in our pockets. And I've become, I think more aware of it. Um, at the same time, I try to temper my looted ways with things like um, uh, pessimistic archives. I think it's what it's called. It's a great account on Twitter that basically just republishes old newspaper articles from how people used to freak out over the telephone, mm-hmm. over comic books, over TV, over radio, over bicycles, over novels. Basically, any innovation in society has been met with a skepticism of, first, oh, won't somebody think of the children and won't they all be perverted by this new technology? And then also the adults that are being led astray by these pieces of technology. And I think that there's something to that. And I think it's very easy to become... uh, alluded in that historic context. But I also do think, and maybe this is a paradox, and maybe this is uh, a contradiction, but there is something different this time. There are uh, ways where the novel, the newspaper, the comic book didn't seem to be actively developed with this Machiavellian attempt to get us in the same way that social media and other pieces of technology are being actively engineered by highly trained professionals who have an entire field of study on how to exploit our mental weaknesses such that we just keep scrolling for as many hours as as possible. Um, And I think that there is... uh, I, too, want to break more free of that. And I've tried in, in a variety of ways and have various levels of success doing that by choosing to do other mediums. Either go off, let's say, social media, for example, for for Sabbath days or Sabbath weeks. Uh, I'd like to try Sabbath months, perhaps even sometime a Sabbath year where you just take the time out. Because whenever I've done it, I felt better. Mm-hmm. I've done several of these Whole week Sabbaths where I haven't checked Twitter or Instagram or any other social media. And it's very hard not to feel better after that. And, and you would think that that realization alone would be enough for you to go like, Oh, well maybe I'm better off without. And there are plenty of people right now, smart people making that recommendation. Exactly. Delete your social media uh, applications, at least from your phone, from the most addictive place, where they are in your pocket. I just finished reading How to Break Up With Your Phone by Kathleen Price, which was a, a great book on well, how to break up with your phone and why you should break up with your phone. And what I actually found most compelling about her argument was not necessarily that we're wasting too much time. Because there are moments out of certain days where the time I'd be I'm wasting on a phone, I'd be wasting anyway. I'd be wasting zoned out on the TV. I just, I'm spent in terms of my creative or intellectual appetite for the day. I'm full. I've read all the highbrow stuff I can read that day or I've been, excuse me, I've been engaged in enough creative pursuits that there's just not more. Right. But Hey, it's still four hours until bedtime. So that part never resonated with me as much That like, oh, well, you reclaim this time, although I do think there's some of it. What resonated with me most deeply was that when we train our brains to the slot machine um, phenomenon that is scrolling these apps over and over, endlessly scrolling these apps over and over, looking for this revelation, this magical picture on Instagram that's going to make us happier, this super funny tweet that's really just going to make our day. Uh, we end up uh, destroying our our ability to focus and it's destroying our ability to to keep attention. And I've, I've observed myself falling prey to that when I'm in in a working uh, moment where I actually do have the long stretch of uninterrupted time because there's nothing on my calendar. I don't have anything scheduled yet. uh, Occasionally I'll take myself like just going to check something because my brain wants that dopamine kick And you're like, this is terrible. I'm doing this to myself. Like no one else is walking into my office to interrupt me or break up that glorious uninterrupted time. No, I'm doing that to myself because I formed hurtful habits. And I really don't want those habits. I want to break those habits. And I want to be able to sit down and focus on one singular activity for three hours straight without having the impulse or the craving to check some stupid feed that's not going to tell me anything interesting or new um so that's the negative side of it Uh, the positive side is that twitter in particular i found also to be actually be a creative outlet i trial a lot of my ideas and thoughts on twitter first before they go to other mediums most of the things i end up writing about they start out as a tweet now maybe the hit ratio is only one to ten, or maybe it's only one to a hundred. That I'll tweet ninety-nine stupid things, and then there's one nugget of gold that turns into a, an article that then years later turns into an essay in a book. But that uh, stand-up-like approach to trying out your material in front of a live audience—it's uh, also addictive. I think that addiction is more benign, or even perhaps helpful to some extent. To uh, validate or invalidate certain ideas at certain times, but um, I, I do think that we've currently swung too far. That for most people, most of the time, technology and smartphones and social media in particular is is probably net negative in their lives. And I actually just got another book um, after finishing How to Break Up with Your Smartphone, which I think it's called delete all your social media today or something like that. Um, and I'm, I'm curious too, to just get that reinforcement because in some ways, how to break up with your smartphone didn't tell me a ton of new stuff. It just gave me a moment to pause and ponder my own relationship with technology. And the conclusion was, actually, I'm not happy where I am. And I even in many ways have done a lot of self-defense to protect me from this technology for example i don't use notifications hardly on anything i turn off notifications on everything um i feel like i have a reasonable relationship with uh, my phone at night um there's other things that I, i do to try to limit its influence over my life but i still also realize that it's not enough and i'd say one of the most positive steps forward, at least in the same sense that we were talking about writing the book, the first you must diagnose your problem is the diagnosis at Apple. And now Google as well, at least for the privileged few who are able to get the latest Android version, um, get this report card. How did you spend your time the last week? How much time did you spend on different apps? Whenever I see that report card, it gives me renewed guilt, <laughs> renewed motivation to do something, because when I see, hey, oh, in the past week you've spent seven hours on Twitter, I go, I could have read two books. I could have read two books in those seven hours. Do I remember any of the stuff from the seven hours I spent on Twitter? Like, is there any retained enjoyment or knowledge or enlightenment from those things? Very often the answer is absolutely not. Versus when I can remember something gratifying for almost every single book that I've read. And, and that stretches years back. Mm. So I, I'm trying to shepherd my attention more towards that. In fact, gone so far as, as to pick up paper books again. <laughs> I didn't read paper books for the longest time, probably since the Kindle came out. Uh, when the Kindle came out, I stopped reading paper books and I thought I didn't miss it. And then all this awareness of how technology is invading our lives led me to think, ah, fuck it. Let me just try a paper book." And, um, I did. And I was like, this is actually great. Like you can flip back and forth really quick. And like, it, it's not another screen in your life. It has this tactile, um, sense of an object that's different. Um, and I kind of fell in love with that. So I ended up ordering a bunch of nice. paper books and, Uh, that then led to my wife um she was always on that train and i used to kind of make fun of her about it and now it comes to like yeah no she's right and now we even have a subscription to the paper edition of the new york times and like who is this person who's reading paper books and gets the newspaper in the morning it's funny because i can see from both sides on the one hand i'm actually i'm proud of us having taken these steps and i can feel the positive effects of them but at the same time like i also have like myself of just a few years ago going like who the fuck is this ludic? like what what are you talking about paper newspaper come on
1: yeah it's funny i think whenever i predicted magazine sales to drop with the internet and, and it kind of it did the opposite in some regards and um and uh, yeah I'm, I'm big into keeping the, the dan sullivan talked about the power of linking your writing hand as well to the brain you know we're wired to do certain things and if we, we kind of don't really know the consequences of not writing anymore or not reading something tangible anymore. And, um, and I think of this tool, it's like an impact filter where you draw out the very worst case scenario and the very best case scenario. So you've got both fuels to help, yes. <laughs> help motivate you. Um, it's funny you, you mentioned
0: writing because that is the one thing I, I still haven't picked up. And it's funny because it's the one thing I also kind of used to snicker about a little bit in the sense of like, oh, here goes the hipster with their paper notebook and their, their pen, right? And I'm like, at this rate, I wouldn't be that surprised if a year from now I'm taking uh, paper notes in, the, in a paper uh,
1: uh, notebook. You know, one thing I'm working on is a gratitude journal for, for, for kids and teenagers, and, and this uh, kind of like a ch- daily checklist of your learnings, your gratitude, your wins, and something that's written down, it's tangible. Um And you seem like a very grateful person yourself. uh, Like, what are you grateful for? Do you have a grateful practice each day? Are there three things you're grateful for today? Um,
0: It's funny. I really respect that outlook on life, and I respect that ritual. But somehow, it's never been part of my routine or even thought process. I found my... Perhaps it is a form of gratitude. I find my technique um, more aligned with the Stoics, and uh, particularly around negative visualization. This idea of not so much being grateful about something specific, but being grateful for being, so to speak. Being, being uh, content with faith as it may play out which is another Stoic principle, Amor Fati, uh, being in love with your fate and not wanting your fate to be something else, which, again, parentheses, side note, that's easy for me to say. Things worked out pretty well in my case. Um, but even so, I think this uh, I, the flip side of that is this idea of negative visualization, visualizing on a weekly basis at least how things could go so terribly wrong from where they are right now. And then using that to... I don't know. Gratitude, perhaps, is, is the right word that I just haven't connected with. But at least recognizing uh, the joys that are here in the moment. That I could lose, I could lose the business tomorrow. We could we could implode, go bankrupt. Some massive fraud, some massive hack. There's plenty of ways that you can go out of business. Then looking at that and going, do you know what? Yeah, actually, gratitude maybe is a good word for it. I've had twenty wonderful years working on Basecamp. This most likely. Is my life's work, and if that should end now. To have had twenty glorious years working with wonderful people, creating a product that customers really like—that's good. That's good enough. And there's other factors of that. I mean, using, um, looking at my my kids and thinking, you know what, this guy is only going to be two and a half months, and. Not only is he just going to be two and a half, he's only going to be like a toddler for a few more years. And then that is over. That is a good reminder to spend the time well. And also not in a longing way. I I don't wish for my six-year-old to be a two-year-old again. I wish and I hope that I spent the time when it's there in the way I would look back on and be proud of. And negative visualization really helps with that, allowing you to imagine all these terrible scenarios and using those as motivation for spending your time. Well, I mean, as horrible as it may sound, my kids could die in a car accident tomorrow and having that possibility in mind is a good driving force and correcting force in how to spend your time well and being mindful about how you spend your time.
1: Mm.
0: It reminds me, which comes back to the seven hours on spend on Twitter, right? mm -hmm. Like, in the context of that, is that time well spent? If my kids, I mean, knock on computer and woods and all sorts of things, the terrible things should happen, and they weren't here tomorrow, would I look back and say like, oh no, those seven hours a week spent on Twitter, those were time well spent, and I, I wouldn't have wanted to spend them with my kids? Probably not, right? You would there's a good chance you would look at some of that time spent with a fair amount of regret. And that isn't that you should drive your entire existence by, it. oh, my God, what if the worst thing happens tomorrow? And I have to constantly walk around wrecked with anxiety about that. For me. One thing is to just live with an acceptance that life is cruel a lot of the time for most people. Very, very few people, probably none, go through life just in an eternal state of bliss. Um, so having that appreciation that even if things are going well now, odds are that that luck will turn at some point and then being prepared for that luck to turn. And then looking back when the luck turns, okay, while I had the wind in my sails, we went for, uh, for a nice, nice outing on the ocean.
1: Yeah. I love that. Um, I was at a Gary Vee event yesterday and he said everyone should go to a retirement home when they're young and look at all the regrets and all the, and, and just oh, to, to draw it out to see. The, yes. Yes. Um, and that's something you seem to do so well based on the, uh, I'm just mindful of your time. Um, just maybe a couple more questions. As, yep. That's good. Yep, yeah. Um, I, mean, I have another five, 10 minutes. Good. Okay. Um, uh, because i you you mentioned enjoying the vinegar as well, and one piece I heard with you about enjoying the discomforts as well and and yes, and and I guess are there other books or philosophies or mindsets around you know how to navigate the ups and downs of life that have been really helpful for you? Um, you mentioned the stoic books, um, is there anything else that comes to mind yeah
0: i put a big uh, recommendation in for the stoic books and I'll I'll give them in order. I'd start with a guide to the good life, which is not an original source, but it draws from a lot of the original sources and it's a great introduction to stoicism. Then if that resonates, um, I would probably recommend taking a swing at the manual by Epictetus. And then there's two other books that are kind of part of the core stoic canon, which is, um, Uh, Marcus Aurelius' Meditations and On the Shortness of Life by Seneca. And it's funny you mentioned discomfort because that was another technique that I really saw articulated well in the stoic writing. This idea that your comfort zone will naturally shrink. And I mean comfort zone in a very literal sense. Your sense of comfort, like when am I well-fed when am i comfortable in my skin when is it too hot when is it too cold when is the room not up to my standing those things will shrink quite rapidly if you don't stress them so uh, i i mean is i stay at all sorts of fancy great hotels all the time and it's very easy to let those experiences ruin your sense of comfort zone, or let it shrink down to this tiny sliver where only the best of the best of the always best is good enough, that's a miserable existence. And I think that's one of the reasons that a lot of uh, well-to-do people end up being miserable fucks, because their comfort zone just shrinks down to a tiny sliver. And I try to consciously stress that on frequent occasion by staying in shitholes and flying in crappy airplanes and renting uh, a shitty rental car and doing other things where you're being forced to recognize, you know what? A, this is not that important. B, this is not that bad. C, even if it is pretty important and it is pretty bad, I can still persevere. I will not crumble just because I'm exposed to this for a while or even a long while. And that uh, specific technique of exposing yourself to discomfort, to stress your system, I found um, very, uh, very uh, helpful. But in terms of otherwise guiding my life, um, I've recently, more recently than Stoicism, picked up on existentialism as another philosophical branch to dive into. And I found a lot of uh, – it sounds weird, comfort, because – It is not otherwise a really comforting philosophy. Basically, the tenet is that we're we're thrown into the world, that uh, existence precedes essence, that there is no meaning to life, and there is no one looking out for us, that there is no cosmic um, purpose, and that you have to figure shit out for yourself through your diligent, explicit actions. And in some ways, that can be a quite depressive and melancholic view of the world and it is and a lot of the writing is everyone from Søren Kierkegaard my fellow Dane as i like to take ownership of uh, <laughs> of people um, uh, to Sartre to Camus to to others um, it is a it, it is a dark I think, in many ways, worldview and the and depressing one, but there's also hope in that, in that clarity, as you break through it. Um, writings in that category, um, The Myth of Syphysis and The Stranger are the two pieces by Camus that I found. I, I read The Stranger first, and I thought, this is such an odd novel. And then The Myth of Syphysis gives it a little more context. And then Uh, There's another great one that's very approachable that's called uh, Existentialism is a Humanism by Sartre, that is basically an account of him doing a um, presentation in in Paris sometime in, I think, in in the early 50s or something. Um, And then Kierkegaard, I've been reading um, Fear and Trembling lately, which is funny because most of the uh, existentialists. Philosophers are all atheists, but Søren Kierkegaard took his existentialism from a very Christian perspective, which has also just been instructive to me to be exposed to because I'm an atheist. And, and I'd say I was not just an atheist, but a rationalist to, to, to a fault until discovering these philosophical traditions and in the literal sense, broadening my view of the world um, so, yeah, those are really the two branches of learning how to live life well that I found very compelling. And then lastly, perhaps I'd say the most approachable of all these is a YouTube channel called um, The Lesson of Life. Ah, oh, jeez, what is it called? Um, the School of Life. That's what it's called, The School of Life. That's actually how I stumbled across a lot of these philosophers and found out who I was interested in reading more about because they have all these great 10-minute clips, like 10 minutes on Camus, 10 minutes on Sartre, mm. and it's just a great appetizers, and they do a wonderful job um, taking both some of the stoic and some of the existentialist philosophies and applying them in a very practical terms on how people can live better lives.
1: Mm. Oh, i love it that was a, that was actually my next question was your spiritual belief because one one of my uh, friends who's building like the future of health ken is really spiritual but yeah into the microbiome and studying all of that and um but his biggest health tip is a spiritual belief something bigger than yourself so you're you don't think you're everything and and the world's not on your shoulders and there's something bigger than you and um it's interesting you say that and I read sapiens and I thought, geez, what are all these stories we're creating, <laughs> creating right. and you, when you meditate on that. And, um, but then, yeah, that, uh, I think there's a strange void, um, that needs to be filled when you've got no spiritual or faith practice or no philosophy on life. And, and I see that coming up more and more, um, now. So I look forward to checking those channels out and, um, Maybe just to wrap oh, on
0: that On that yeah. topic, I'll give a last book shout out. Probably my favorite book that I've read in the past couple of years is a book from, uh, I think it was published in, in 1941 by Eric Fromm called Escape from Freedom. And it really diagnoses exactly what you're talking about this, this despair of not feeling a connection, not having these primary bonds to a, a structure, and feeling lost with all this freedom that modern society gives us, and that that loss exposes us to, uh, unfortunately, a, a despair that can lead us into the arm of strong men. He's writing about Hitler in his time, but it is uncanny how much of that, the diagnosis in that book is so spot on for the exact moment in time that we're living in. Whether you look at the US, what's going on in Europe, what's going on in Brazil, there's a, uh, an escape from freedom a rejection of freedom going on because it has been a freedom from a freedom from a lot of things, mm. not a freedom to. Mm. And Eric from writes in an incredibly readable. And if you didn't see the publication date, seemingly exceedingly contemporary fashion and, um, uh, it's a wonderful book. I, I really highly recommend it as a as a diagnosis of what we're going through as society right now and our problems with freedom, both in the incarnation of democracy and 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 other other ways. It's um, it's truly fascinating, and I find what I've really taken from a lot of the philosophical writings that I've or readings I've picked up in in the past few years is this sense of. Uh, uh, loss of uniqueness that our current time is not so special our current minds are not so special the stoics 2200 years ago were wrestling with things that seem so incredibly contemporary because some of these basic conditions of the human existence are just universal and they span time and then you you read the diagnosis of modern society as eric from puts it forward and you go like Jeez, that's what is that, 70 years ago? And like, it is so timely. It's just fascinating to get an appreciation for that. And I think you, it insulates you a little bit from this notion like, oh my God, everything is uniquely horrible. Everything is uniquely bad. We're under this unique pressure and stress. And you're like, there's some unique factors, but I think there's more that
1: is just utterly timeless. Yeah. And I love that sentiment, how you said freedom from and freedom to that if you want freedom from all the rules you have to create your own rules and yes and because you know without that you go crazy it's um and so as an entrepreneur and, and it's
0: not yeah. so easy that once you're
1: granted this freedom from all sorts
0: of either bonds or shackles or oppression if you don't then discover some freedoms too some positive freedoms of things that you actually want to do, you you can end up in this void where you went like, actually, uh, I would rather not have these freedoms. I would rather revert. And you see that in a lot of political side of movements right now where people willingly go into a reduction of their freedoms because in some ways they can't handle it. And they can't handle it for a variety of reasons. And it's not about personal failings so much as institutional and structural uh, inhibitors to it. But you go like Bolsonaro in Brazil right now is polling extremely high. Some of his uh, party members are winning elections in Brazil at at, uh, higher levels than ever. And you go like, jeez, are people really willfully voting out democracy and voting out these other things? And there's a lot of things. You can't simplify it or reduce it just to that. But I just found that Uh, um, Escape from Freedom was an extremely instructive book to um, help you make sense of it on a psychological sense. Because a lot of times people go like, I can't understand that people are voting against their own best self-interest. That's actually a pretty shallow and uninformed diagnosis of what's going on. And Eric Frum puts forward a much more compelling, complete and in-depth diagnosis of, of
1: what's going on love it and uh, last last question uh, kind of back to the book are the top top three tips for a happy calm uh, fulfilled successful life
0: uh, for me a lot of it starts at work if you have a full-time job and that is where it's crazy at work all the time it's very hard to compartmentalize that it leaks. You must find a way to remedy that, to introduce calm at work, to make it more calm, at least. Not necessarily as the final destination, but make it more calm. If you are stuck at it's crazy at work, you're going to find it very difficult, I believe, to make it peacefully calm at home. These things are intertwined. And that's why even if people are poo-pooing the idea now of balance, that they're... Whether you use the words balance or not, there's certainly a connection. And uh, taking the time to critically examine why it's crazy at work and realizing that it doesn't have to be crazy at work and putting in the work to stop it from being crazy at work is time very well spent. And I hope that with the new book, It Doesn't Have to Be Crazy at Work, we at least give people an idea of where to start. Because as we talked about in the beginning, if you don't even have a diagnosis, it's very hard to start looking for what kind of medicine you need. So just illuminating people, even if they don't agree with the medicine we, we prescribe in the book, at least if we can just make people look critically at how it is at work, that what is the cost of this exhaustion? What is the cost of these endless growth aspirations? Um they can design their own cocktail for how they want to fix that. Or they can decide, hey, knowing everything, I, I still I love that it's crazy at work. Okay, I haven't met a whole lot of people like that. But if that's your final conclusion, then at least you're making that conclusion willingly and knowingly, not just by default, not just because you stumble into it, not just because you believe inauthentically that it has to be crazy at work or that that is somehow a trophy or prize.
1: Love it. I really appreciate your um your time, David, and, and just grateful and thankful for the the message you're putting out and um yeah, it's uh I can't wait to read the book and to, to share it around New Zealand and uh yeah, make it awesome. make it a bit more calm and, and uh you look forward to hearing about your, your trip out here too. Are you is there anything particularly yeah, looking absolutely. forward to or your
0: um, my wife has been designing the, uh, itinerary and, and, I know we have a bunch of exciting stuff lined up. I think we're going to be there for 10 days. Yeah. Um, some of the time we, we are going to spend in Australia, uh, but I think the majority of it is going to be in New Zealand. And, uh, yeah, I'm really excited. I've wanted to go for many, many years. I've, um, you probably know the Webstock conference. Um, they've been, it, that's in New Zealand is a web tech conference in New Zealand. And they've been, um, inviting me to go for, I think about six years and every year I go like, yeah, this is the year I want to do it. But then for whatever reason, um,
1: it hasn't panned out yet. So super excited to finally get a chance to go. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. If you need any recommendations for, um, restaurants, places to see or anything, hikes. I I
0: might very well hit you up um, and
1: say, uh, look for that. Absolutely. Thank you. I really appreciate it. Um. Oh, fantastic I'll oh, have a beautiful weekend in the, the states and uh, yeah and it's any any I'll'll uh, put all the links in the show notes and um, I think that's about it but I'll and I'll try and maybe get a few copies of the book to give away and yeah
0: sounds great thanks so much for awesome. your time thank you I really appreciate it. this was a great conversation thanks man
1: talk okay. to you soon cheers David Bye. wow what an episode um, sometimes you just connect with people and i felt like that with david he he just yeah the same frequency or something but um really questioning life and trying to find a better way and i love the book i haven't read it fully i've just seen the synapses online but i've ordered a couple of uh, copies so look forward to giving one of those away make sure you check it out give it a read if you can't afford it just buy it from the library no excuses and uh I said buy it Hire it from the library And he's also got Two other great books Remote and Rework And I'm really Enjoying this idea Of remote working as well Um Currently up at Tiare Looking over a beautiful forest And Being able to record this Online and be productive And um And really create An amazing life Which I think is What's all What it's all about So you, you can do your best work So that you're best You're better for others And um It's just this Wonderful Upward spiral And um really look forward to reading some of those books David recommended too so make sure you give him a follow again I'll include everything in the show notes thank you for listening think less experience more and also get some more calm into your day hope you dug it